1: to today's talk. We have Professor Lucan Wade, professor of political science at the University of Toronto, who has written two books and is on his way to writing a third one and already has a book contract. His Mm -hmm. book, which we'll be talking about today, is called Pluralism by Default, Weak Autocrats, and the Rise of Competitive Politics. He also has a book with Stephen Blavinsky called Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War. He has also published extensively in comparative politics journals along with uh, chapters in editor volumes and articles in various studies journals. Uh, today he'll be talking about his recent book, which is, by the way, for sale outside the door, and you can buy copies after this talk is over. Uh, Professor Wei is also the co-chair of the editorial board of the Journal of Democracy which it seems like you uh, publish there every other month. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Professor Wei's uh, interests are broadly post-Soviet, and even though he speaks Russian, his true love, I think, is the sweet spot of Europe, Ukraine, Belarus, and Moldova, which I understand will figure highly in the talk today. So, please join me in welcoming Professor Luke and Wei. <clears throat>
2: so, um, thanks, Scott. Uh, Scott has uh, been very kind. He's one of these people who... I emailed him about, for a while I was emailing him about once a week with questions on Kyrgyzstan, and he always responded, you know, very politely and didn't at least show his exasperation with me, <laughs> you know. Anyway, uh, so it's great to be here. Uh, thank you so much uh, for coming. Um, I want to talk about my book today, which uh, is Pluralism by Default. Basically, uh, the big puzzle, the sort of macro puzzle that this book examines um, is why after the end of the Cold War there emerged a number of, of democracies or near democracies among countries that most of scientists would be considered having weak prerequisites for, for democracy. You know, un- economically underdeveloped, weak rule of law, weak external pressure for democracy. Um, among these sort of uh, among less developed countries, we had a doubling of the share of the, among those countries of democracies among these countries that, you know, in a sense, are with, with, uh, had weak democratic prerequisites or, or countries without democratic prerequisites. And specifically, I'm focusing on sort of explaining variation, among uh, focusing on three cases in the former Soviet Union, uh, Moldova, uh, Ukraine, and Belarus. This basically shows you, um, here is the number of turnovers, the number of times that incumbents fell from power and this is the uh, Freedom House score for democracy and we see in the, in the basically a one is sort of democratic heaven seven is democratic hell and um, and Moldova and Ukraine are much closer to democratic heaven whereas uh, Belarus is much closer to authoritarian hell or whatever you call it and so basically this book looks at you know why these two cases were more democratic, whereas Belarus was less, and also more broadly how this theory applies to the rest of the former Soviet Union. And to understand sort of, you know, when we typically think about democracy, most um, political scientists, you know, uh, have looked at sort of um, the positive factors. They see democracy as a, 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 a success, you know, a success as a product of mobilized civil society, um, democratic leadership, George Washington, Nelson Mandela, or alternatively, um, well-designed institutions, like parliamentary regimes—you know—versus president. You know, parliamentary in- uh, institutions are good; presidential regimes are bad. Or else, um, some argue that it emerges out of a democratic culture, right? And these are sort of seeing, so that basically, democracy as an achievement, right? Of, sort of these positive factors. I want to look at it from the other end and see. Actually, argue in this book that pluralism, in many cases. Emerges not from success, but from the weakness of authoritarianism. In other words, uh, rather than strong democratic forces, in that in Moldova and Ukraine, I think, and elsewhere like the for- uh, sub-Saharan Africa, the mo- some of the most democratic places um, are not those where you have particularly strong civil society, democratic leadership, or well-designed institutions. And they instead, such places emerge out of underdeveloped ruling parties, dysfunctional state, and divided society. So, in other words. This pluralism emerges from the failure of authoritarianism rather than the success of democracy. Now, this question of you know what explains greater or lesser democracy in the former Soviet Union has been examined by a number of people. Uh, probably the dominant theory relates to constitutional design, and here the idea is that um, countries with more presidential regimes, like countries in which power is centered in the president, um, tend to tend to fare less well than countries um, which have parliamentary regimes in which um, power is more distributed among a parliament. Um, and you know, this, this uh, theory has some validity, but if you actually look at the cases closely, we find that rules are often ignored, and oftentimes authority, um, the constitutions themselves are a product of authoritarianism rather than constitutions creating authoritarianism. So the super-presidential constitution in 1993 in Russia was imposed after Yeltsin had bombed Parliament. In other words, it was a product of authoritarianism rather than its cause, so I think the causal arrow is going the other way. Um, Henry Hale has similarly, in a different time of argument, argued that competition emerges out of two term limits. Here he argues that uh, term limits, which exist in the United States, obviously create um, competition um, because the old incumbent has to leave power, creates room for, for new people. But in fact, um, most turnovers in the former Soviet Union occur in the first term, i.e., before um, term limits took effect. And this the theory doesn't explain why, why, why most incumbents in the former Soviet Union just simply sidestepped term limits, and only five abided by them. So, in other words, this question of term limits raised the question why do some abide by them and others ignore them? Um, civil society is another approach. I mean this is particularly in the case of Ukraine. I'm sure most of you have read the news. you see you know, people on the streets. Um, and you know indeed, civil society does play a role in Ukrainian politics. But if we look more closely, we find that it does not explain the most important, the most key factor of these uh, protests, which is their size. In other words, surveys of, of protesters, showed that 90% came on their own, were not organized by civil society, student groups, or, or whatnot. They came more or less spontaneously. So civil society really doesn't explain mass protests in the former Soviet Union. Um, next, uh, demo- pluralism is oftentimes seen as a democratic values. In Ukraine, people will talk to you about the tradition of Cossack democracy. And in Belarus, which is more authoritarian, they talk about a collectivist mentality. But the problem with cultural explanations is that most countries have multiple traditions. So the question is, which you know, which tradition do you choose? I mean, you know, any number of traditions. For example, in Belarus, um, you can think about uh, the Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth in the 17th century. Um, why is that not their tradition? Why is it a collectivist tradition? And indeed, there's almost no evidence that Belarusians, are, as a population, support democracy less than they do in Moldova, Ukraine. And furthermore, protesters in a lot of these demonstrations are not themselves very democratic, so surveys show that in 2004, during the Orange Revolution, a minority supported multi-party democracy. Finally, people have argued, well, it's a product of democratic leadership. That what creates uh, pluralism and democracy in these places is that you have good guys in power, people like Nelson Mandela, George Washington, who willingly give up power. But the problem with this theory is that Moldova and Ukraine, have eight different leaders, so and they all it's all they've all been more dem- you know, they've all it's all been more democratic under all these leaders. Quite so, it seems like a, a stunning coincidence that Moldova and Ukraine just happen to produce leaders. Who are consistently over time over this 25 years since the end of the Soviet Union more democratic than Belarus, right? So it's just not very plausible that they're just you know there's no reason to think that Moldovans and Ukrainians are any nicer than Belarusians. Belarusians are very nice too. So um, okay, so instead my theory focuses on pluralism by default, and pluralism by default is to find these cases in which political competition emerges out of weak authoritarian institutions rather than democratic strength. In other words, um, it's, rather than seeing these countries as emerging democracies as much as the literature has seen them, we, it's better to see them as, um, as weak authoritarian regimes. So to give you a sort of intuitive sense of, of my argument, I'm going to talk about this guy who you know, many of you have probably never heard of, Lenin Kravchuk. Now, he's known, he was the first president of Ukraine, came to power in 1991, and he was known because he was the first former president. In other words, he was um, he lost an election in 1994 and left power. So that was considered an important element uh, in the sort of, what people call the consolidation of democracy in Ukraine. So, you know, this seems like um, so you think, oh my God, what a nice guy. He gave up power willingly. Well, then I was—if you look more closely, it actually becomes more complicated because, as he admits in his memoirs, in 1993 he decided, late 1993, that he was going to cancel elections and shut down Parliament, and even in sort of announced a date he was going to announce this on television. But then something funny happened on the way right to doing this was that he met with his security officials, he met with his um, military, and they said, President Kravchuk, you know, we just simply do not have the capacity to do this. Basically, the police were too underpaid, the military you know, lacked the motivation, they, they basically would not be able to carry out you know, shutting down parliament. So as a result, he was forced to back down, and he lost power in the election. In other words, the reason why Ukraine had its first democratic turnover was not because it had a particularly democratic leader. It, had very, it did not have particularly strong institutions, but the state, the state was too weak to carry out authoritarians. This is very different from you know, the way we tend to see these types of events. So basically my argument is that pluralism by default emerges from three different factors, underdeveloped ruling party, a weak authoritarian state, and a divided national identity um, and that basically explains um, some of the difference between Moldova, Ukraine, and Belarus. Okay, so first, underdeveloped ruling party. Oops. Um, basically, um, what do I mean by here? The presence or absence of a single well-developed ruling party, basically, if you don't have this, you're much more likely to fall from power and much more likely to have sort of high degree of competition. The next element is an is a, a authoritarian state now, typically, you know, in the United States, we tend to, in the literature of political science, we tend to think of the state in positive terms. You know, It's a warm and fuzzy. It gives us health care. It protects human rights. You know, this is how the state has, has been sort of seen in political science for the last 25 years. I'm not talking about this state. I'm talking about another state, a sort of early modern state that's primarily involved in repression and control over economic resources. And basically, my argument is that um, that it cases um, where the state, you know, so how do we identify the state? You know, is it well funded? Does the state have um, you know discretionary control over the economy? And basically, the argument is that competition partially moves, emerges from the fact that the that the security apparatus is relatively weak and underfunded, and the state um, does not control um, the economy. Finally. Um, notion of, uh, arguments about national identity that I uh, argue that polarized division between um, in countries in which there exists a polarized division between groups that can plausibly gain power, you're more likely to have. Um, it's going to be much harder to um, consolidate authoritarianism. Okay, so basically, how does this work? In a, a weak ruling party that encourages elite defection. It's more likely that incumbents will face. Opposition from their allies, even when the opposition is otherwise quite weak. In cases of weak authoritarian state, these are cases in which there's weak capacity to steal elections, the incumbent will have a harder time suppressing opposition. And finally, divided national identity, the argument is that polarized divisions basically make it easier for opposition to mobilize support against the incumbent, because they're not fighting for some abstract moral democracy, but, but uh, national unity or fighting for the nation. In other words, it's generally seen as easier to mobilize along nationalism than it is um, along more sort of abstract notions like democracy. Uh, and what the divided identity does is it provides a, a built-in source of, of opposition mobilization that the opposition is able to use, even when it lacks other sort of uh, material or repressive source resources. Okay, so that's basically the theory. Um, Now, I examine two puzzles in this book. The first is, you know, what explains variation across cases? Why is Moldova and Ukraine more democratic consistently across time than Belarus? And then, a second puzzle is within cases. Why do we see variation over time in each case? And basically, my argument is that the existence or absence of national divisions explains, um, what, you know the national divisions in Moldova Ukraine explain why you have more competition than in Belarus, and whereas the relatively united national identity in Belarus explains why it was easier to consolidate authoritarianism. Within cases over time, we see variations and changes in party and state capacity to help it, us understand why some periods of, of history in the last 25 years have been more or less democratic. Okay. So the first is you know, what explains um, variation across case. Why is Ukraine and Moldova more democratic than Belarus? Well, in Ukraine and Moldova, there are you know, pretty clear examples of divided identities. Um, in Ukraine, you have Russophiles versus Ukrainophiles. It's been, um, most of you probably know this from the news on Euromaidan. You, know, you have a, a historic division between these two groups which really, who really see the Ukrainian nation in very different ways. In um, Moldova, you had a similar division between Russophiles and Romanians, or Europeans. Um, And what these divisions did was, first of all, in the late 80s, when Gorbachev instituted perestroika and the Soviet state began to collapse, um, you had early nationalist mobilization that that led to the rapid destruction of the authoritarian party state that had existed under the Soviet Union. So from the beginning, basically people like Korokov could have true you know, just did not have a very strong and united uh, repressive apparatus, in part because of this nationalist mobilization. Subsequently, this division basically um, created a ready-made opposition. In other words, when Ukrainophiles were in power, Russophiles provided a strong opposition to the Ukrainophiles. When the U- Russophiles were in power, the Ukrainophiles provided a strong and consistent opposition to the Russophiles. And indeed, there, you know, four turnovers in Ukraine, all of them have been by the other side of the national divide. Similarly in Moldova, when the Russophiles are in power, the, the your, Romanians have mobilized to overthrow the Russophile, and vice versa. And in Ukraine, we see, you know, we, there's a good amount of survey data, and we find in, in both in the Orange Revolution in 2004, as well as the more recent Euromaidan. That you know, various measures of commitment to Ukrainian identity, speaking Ukraine and the, and the like, you know, being Ukrainophile, are um, incredibly strong predictors of participation in these protests. Which at that time, both in 2004 under Kuchma, uh, the incumbent was Kuchma, a Russophile Kuchma, in 2014 it was a very Russophile Yanukovych. So basically, they used national identity as a powerful mobilizing tool that brought out. You know, millions of people onto the street were able to, to stay, you know, remain passionate enough despite severe cold, despite the fact that they faced enormous violence in Ukraine in 2014. That was that nationalism provides the source of passion that allows people to sort of take the risks necessary to oust the regime. Um, and you know, as I show in my book, this uh, divided identity played a really powerful role in making it virtually impossible for Yanukovych and other autocrats in Ukraine to consolidate authoritarian rule. Now the uh, situation in Belarus was very different, basically the Russophiles have dominated Belarus, you do not have this strong regional debil- division. As a result, when Lukashenko came to power, he was able to crudely introduce you know, highly presidentialist constitution, highly authoritarian rule, and the opposition basically was completely isolated. In other words, he was able to say, "Why should you trust these guys? They simply want more power." Whereas in Ukraine, you're able to say, "We want uh, unity with Europe." Uh, in, in, in Belarus, that was much harder because you lacked this kind of division. Um, and furthermore, because of uh, Lukashenko's strong ties to Russia, he was able to get enormous aid from Russia—sort of unprecedented aid from, you know, from Russia—which was in turn. He had uh, far more access to economic resources than did Belarus, than did Moldova and Ukraine, which were isolated by Russia. So, both of these factors, the weak opposition um, and, and Russia's support, you know, made it much easier for Lukashenko to consolidate authoritarian rule, which is basically what we still have today, unfortunately. Um, he's been in power longer than any autocrat outside of. Um, Central Asia. Central Asia, they tend to stay in power longer. You can talk to Scott about that. Okay. So then, the next question is, that's a cross case. But within these cases, you see, um, you know, variation over time, and so the book looks, at, you know, why? In, in all these cases, you see some degree of variation over time. Um, so uh, you know, Belarus was more competitive in the very early 1990s, less so later on, and Moldova and Ukraine, really sort of a stark variation across time. Um, and I have, you know, indicators of this, and I go through extensively in the book in terms of how I code these. Um, so the question is, what explains this variation? And here I think this is where party and state power do a, a pretty good job. Basically, in Belarus, um, I mean, you had the consolidation of authoritarian rule. What happened is, basically, when Gorbachev was in power in the late 80s, He, um, the Soviet Union as many of you know, had a strong centralized economy, Gorbachev systematically dismantled the mechanisms of central economic control. So Lukashenko comes to power in 1994, he literally has to recreate them. Now what's interesting is that studies of state building tend to always focus on the good kind of state building, the courts, Um, you know, democratic state building. They don't focus on you know, the kind of state building people don't like, and this, but this was real state building. Luke Schindel had to reestablish control over the course of apparatus. He had to rebuild the mechanisms to control the economy. Um, and he did that through a variety of means, which I emphasize in the book, you know, the, the strengthening of key institutions, which gave him, you know, we this control over individual enterprises. In, in Moldova, and Ukraine, um, there was a bit of state building, um, but here the difference was really over whether or not the incumbent was backed by a single party, a relatively institutionalized party, or not. Basically, in a nutshell, um, when the incumbent uh, as Yang, uh, came to power with a relatively institutionalized party, he was much less likely to face uh, opposition from within, when, by contrast, an incumbent came to power as a coalition of multiple parties, as in Kravchuk, as in Um, In those cases, they faced much greater competition from within, and it was very hard, almost impossible, to consolidate authoritarian rule. So again, in essence, national divisions explain differences between Belarus and Ukraine, differences in in organizational or state party capacity over time, explain variation across time in these two cases, and that's really what my book is trying to show. Okay, so, what about the rest of the former Soviet Union? And also, you know, uh, I think this argument travels to Sub-Saharan Africa. But um, the rest of the former Soviet Union, here we have, again, the Freedom House score here shows it's average, um, here we have the number of turnovers, so the more turnovers, the more competitive, the lower the Freedom House score, the more democratic. Um, and we find you know, a rough correlation between the degree of splitness and, and organizational capacity and the degree of competition. So in Belarus, Moldova and Ukraine, as we just talked about, the low split thing really explains um, why you have uh, greater authoritarianism in Belarus than in Moldova Ukraine. Within the Caucasus, um, you know, you have basically similar coding along the national split variable, which I can explain. Um, but you know, Georgia has been both the most democratic and also by far the weakest in terms of state party capacity. You know, it's somewhat of a correlation in, in, in Central Asia. Um, Kyrgyzstan works really well. Um, you know, Tajikistan you know, does not work for our argument. There you have really weak um, state and party capacity, but nonetheless a very consolidated, you know, relatively consolidated authoritarian regime with only one turnover. So, um, so you know, there are cases that don't work for our argument, um, which I would see as a good sign because it indicates that I'm not just like tautology. I, mean, I love tautology, don't get me wrong. But it's somewhat comforting to know that your know, argument is not completely tautological. Um, Okay, so that's one aspect. So there's a rough correlation across space in terms of um, my outcome, competition, and uh, pluralism by default. Um, I also look at this theory, you know, really this is a theory of incumbents, right? In other words, incumbents backed by stronger parties and states and that do not face societal divisions are, are more likely to sort of remain in power and impose regimes that are less competitive. And indeed, I sort of looked at all incumbents between 1992 and 2014, and I find a very strong correlation between these factors and the length of time they stay in power. So there were 16 incumbents in the former Soviet Union since 1992 that either had very weak states by my coding or uh, divided identities. Only three of those, only three of those, um, survived for more than two terms. Right? So so overwhelming majority could not survive more than two terms. By contrast, there were 11 incumbents that by my measure had relatively strong party and state and a weakly divided identity. And of these, 9 of 11 cases survived more than two terms. So correlation does not equal causation, certainly. Um, And I I do try to show it a little bit, causal mechanisms in the book, and my editors told me I had no more than 290 pages, so I wasn't able to show it quite as much as I would have liked. But I think it was you know a pretty strong indication that my approach goes a long way towards explaining the variation in, in political outcomes in the former Soviet Union. Okay. I also think you know, um, that if we look at sub-Saharan Africa, what we find is a similar situation where by far, if you look at the 25 most democratic c- countries in sub-Saharan Africa, um the overwhelming majority of them are in states that are relatively weak in which you have no, uh, almost no ruling party. So you know this argument I think does, travel to Africa. Um, oh sorry. Um, it also explains in the former Soviet Union over time. Basically, the Soviet Union was most democratic in the early 1990s, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the state, when the authoritarian state had been was weakest, when the center had least control over the KGB and other security. Services and more less democratic as you had witnessed state building as um, the fiscal health of the state improved the economies improved they were able to basically pay you know pay the police and the army and you have again this sort of fits my argument you had a gradual decrease in in democracy over time as the state became stronger so again I think this provides some uh, circumstantial evidence um, for my argument. Okay. So why do we care? I mean, basically, my argument is that we have to, you know, when we look at countries like Kyrgyzstan, um, countries of sort of these, of, these democratic moments, we tend to sort of assume that emerging democracy, civil society, or democratic leadership, is are behind this sort of democratic success. But I want to ask you, Is before we do that, we have to first look does the autocrat actually have the capacity to impose authoritarianism? And oftentimes, at least in the post-Cold War era, um, democracy or pluralism has emerged essentially by default as a product of authoritarian weakness. And that basically all good things don't go together. Right? That sometimes um, you know you have a more democratic outcome in Ukraine, but that's a that may be a, a product of dysfunction. Rather than a particularly strong civil society, and finally, it's important to understand, you know, which you know, pluralist countries, which countries that are democratic, democratic, it's important, I think, for policymakers to understand: is that a product of strong civil society, of strong institutions, which you know, you know, which has very important implications, or is it alternatively a product of weak authoritarian institutions, as in Ukraine? And this is important because. It suggests that, you know, in cases of pluralism by default, it's much more likely to be unstable, and the democracy is probably not going to last very long. Um, and I think contemporary Ukraine is very much, and Moldova, or continue to be very much pluralism by default. I do not see civil society being very strong. Okay, thanks.
0: in my mind about whole talk, this idea that the pluralism that you're talking about here might be inherently unstable. He's thinking about those factors that you made out. the first thing that came to my mind was, why not civil war? Why does this end in any sort of period of pluralism at all, instead of immediately transitioning to something entirely unstable and violent? So I wonder if you could speak to what that might be, and, and whether it is the sort of third, fourth factor of some sort of Russia support, external thing, or or what is a factor that might explain the, at
2: all the period of pluralism before the war? Um, well, you know, I think, you know, I, I do address this I mean, um, in my book, I mean, there's um, I mean, uh, a little bit, I mean, basically what you have is kind of inverse you, right, that, you know, sort of weakness um, encourages competition to a certain point, but once it does you know, have the breakdown in social order, as in Tajikistan, you know, it obviously does not um, uh, uh, promote right um, so there's clearly you know I'm not saying that um, weakness always you know extreme weakness obviously the RST and there's plenty an examples so I'm really talking and I, I discussed but I, mean, I don't have many of these cases in the former Soviet Union um, but uh, basically we, you know I'm talking when I talk about authoritarian weakness it's basically cases that um, in which there's Weak control, but there has not been a breakdown of social order and civil war. So. Um, what was your other question? Uh, something about the external Russia. So I, you know, I've written about it. I have sort of a side article on this. I mean, I think that I think in, in Belarus, Russia was very important, but Belarus is a is a unique case because Russian economic support was so overwhelming, much more than in any part of the former Soviet Union. In general, I think. That the impact, Russia's impact, despite what uh, Ukrainian opposition will tell you, you know, see Putin behind everything. You know, Scott's working on a book on conspiracy theories, you know, if you go to Ukraine, Putin is responsible for all ills in Ukraine. I actually don't see, I don't see that he has as much that much of an impact. I just don't see it. I mean, um, you know, having studied these cases very closely. So I think it tends to be overestimated. I mean, it's certainly a factor... But I think sort of domestic factors tend to be much stronger in determining regime outcome. for among other reasons, you know, Putin really actually doesn't care that much whether these countries are democratic or not, so. All right. Um, I find this argument
3: about uh, split identity to be uh, very intriguing and and, uh, uh, very uh, persuasive in the few cases that I have some familiarity with. So here's the question. Uh, Those split identities were created when, at different times, uh, 1922 and 1936, uh, after World War II and 1954, uh, different lines were drawn uh, and and various people were saying, you guys are inside these lines and and the rest of you are outside. Uh, So, how do you explain Or just, I I just want your thoughts on why certain lines are accepted. Uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, and so forth. A lot of these things are, are really very, very recent. And within those lines, you have different ethnic groups and all sorts of alternative identities. You've got groups like the Chechens who say, we don't accept these lines. We have Nagorno Karabakh. We, we have all this mess in Central Asia where the lines are, are very difficult to understand. So, uh, uh, how do you explain the, the, the. In some cases, it seems that uh, uh, these different identity groups accept the lines that were drawn uh, within the Soviet Union about who is in what Union Republic. Um, I think that's part of your story, but in other cases we'll find that people d- don't accept
2: those, those lines. Right. So that's a hugely important question, and um, I don't really have the answer for it. I, mean, I basically accept that, um, I basically take, um, I look at um, countries in which already have political, do or do not already have politically mobilized identities, which I, I certainly aren't you know, primordial, but they are politically created at some point in the past. <laughs> Um, and I'm looking at cases like Bangladesh is another example, which we have a clear division between sort of pro-Pakistani Bangladeshi Kennedy and pro-Indian Bangladeshi It actually fulfills a very similar function as in Ukraine. Um, but I think your know, work—that's you know, an interesting question. I think when the former Soviet Union, Keith Thornton, has argued that um, that sort of when mass literacy was introduced is very important. So what's interesting is that the former Soviet Union, Moldova and Ukraine. Are the only countries in which you had um, in different parts of Ukraine, different parts of Moldova, um, you know, parts of Moldova, um, Romania's part, mass literacy was introduced before Soviet rule under Romania. Another part, mass literacy was introduced under Russian rule. So you have this stark division similarly in Ukraine. And all other parts of the former Soviet Union outside of the Baltics, um, you basically have cases in which literacy across the board was introduced after the Soviet Union was created. Thus, meaning that those identities, I think, are much less stark, much less polarized um, than in Moldova and um, and Ukraine. The other difference that I want to sort of emphasize here is I'm I'm talking. I'm, I'm very. I talk, I have thought about this a lot. Um, I really mean between between groups um, that can possibly gain power. So I'm not talking about Chechens, right, in Russia. But, you know, Chechens obviously could not gain national power in, in Russia. Nor am I talking about cases like. Um, you know, the the Christian minority in in Egypt, I mean, these are cases, I I don't think those divisions promote pluralism, it's in cases where you have a more, you know, each side is large enough to kind of create a stalemate. Um, um, And there, you know, there aren't that many, there are a few, I mean, um, I think uh, Bangladesh is another one, um, and there are a few other cases, Um, but yeah. Yeah, so, um, first off,
1: I want to situate you intellectually for people who haven't been following your career. Notwithstanding your um, chairmanship of the board of the Journal of Democracy, uh, you were kind of pushing against the dominant democratic discourse about the region about a decade ago, if not earlier. Before it was cool to study authoritarianism. Before that,
2: market I was always time before it was cool, man.
1: Yeah, and before that market became saturated. Um, so you were kind of being subversive in this general field that was dominated by people like Paul, who. You know, at least implicitly, we're kind of assuming this normative teleological tendency toward democracy and measuring everything against that that standard. So, uh, for the record, I was sympathetic to that approach way before. Also, you know,
2: well, you you always were cool normalism. too, so.
1: I tried to be, but you were, but you were cooler. I was cool. So, um, oh yeah, my question. So,
2: uh, <laughs> no, that's, that's that's plenty. I <laughs>
1: But there's a lot of academic cachet in being subversive, so I think you've done a good well, job of it. thanks, yeah. I remember seeing your presentation on the earlier version of this probably maybe a decade ago. Yeah, a while ago. it was like 40 years people ago. people thought you were crazy, but then it turns out... Maybe you are crazy, I but now you have a book. <laughs> um, so you, um, you try to uh, focus on the institutions rather than the, the leaders and making the institutions as exogenous as possible. Uh, but... As you know, leaders also can affect the institution. So what do you do about institutions that are reversible, right? The values of those variables can change, where a leader can make a strong a weak party strong or make a weak state stronger by building up the security services and such, uh, renationalizing the economy to the extent that they can. So all these things are at least potentially reversible within a few years. Um, and if that happens, then really the causal variable becomes the leader, the leader's capacity or the leader's ability to work within the confines uh, that he inherits. So, how do you deal with threat structure agency? And I have two smaller related questions, I can do
2: the Okay, so that's a great question. First of all, I have to say, um, if anybody knows my other work, I was, you know, did my PhD at Berkeley, deeply structural by inclination, um, and my book, folk- Competitive Authoritarianism, was very structural. You know, it's, um, it's funny when you start looking at cases, I mean, this is a much more you know, this book much, much more closely at cases over time. I have to admit, you know, I, I was forced to abandon some of my structure along the side of the road. Um, and I think it basically varies across variable. I think, you know, this is obviously the most structural in terms of, you know, it's hard for any of the actors at that time in the post-Soviet era to change. Um, I think the weak authoritarian state um, you know, in a sense the end of the Soviet Union made, just by destroying the Communist Party, by destroying the Soviet state, left all leaders you know, with a kind of weak authoritarian party state, without a party. And you know, leadership matters to some extent, but I think, you know, you know, so leaders could decide to create a party or not. They could not decide to create a Bolshevik party that had the kind of cohesion that the Bolsheviks did. That was, you know, that's a product, this is my current book. The product of these much more long-term historical factors, so that there is a role for leadership. You know, I think you know Bel- Lukashenko decides in 1994 to recreate a centralized um, economic control. He could have decided not to, right? But you know that's hard to do, and you can't do it in all these in all cases. So I think I think leadership plays certainly plays a role in certain cases, but I think it's much hard, it sort of varies um, by variable in a sense. Um, but the main thing I, what I do show is that you can measure. Um, these variables ex ante, other words, before when they come to power. But that, you know that. So I do think there's a role for. Le- but also, I think there's a role for leadership in ways. You know, people. You know, le- discussion of leadership again has been very democracy biased. You know, tends to focus, um, you know, on the willingness to give up power. But also, you know, what I show is that leadership matters in terms of building these authoritarian institutions. You know, you know do they decide? Which I think there's just been, you know, total. Even today. And you're right, you know, there's, this, like, vast literature of authoritarianism. When I started off in the early 2000s, you know, no one was studying authoritarianism. And now it's like, it's, it's already not cool anymore. It's like, I don't know, you know, it's like, you know, it's not cool to support... Everybody likes the Beatles, like, no, cool. but no one's cool. But even so, people do not focus as much, I think, as they should on on these kind of institutions. Yeah, yeah the...
3: What's the... How do you define tourism? Because I got a sense that... Uh, Somehow I, I got confused between polarization and pluralism. Between what? Polarization that you mentioned. Uh, in other words, uh, what you I because I couldn't understand correctly what you what you mean by pluralism. Somehow uh, I uh, there could be pluralism could be could be could mean polarization in
0: some cases.
2: Well, I think it's something that... I basically define it along four dimensions: um, degree um, to which elections are stolen or not. The um, oh, second dimension is media, the degree to which there's an independent media. Um, third is opposition strength, degree to which there's a powerful opposition. And the fourth is the, the power of the, of the legislature over the president and vice versa. So that's how I define and those four dimensions. And I measure those four dimensions across time in all my cases. And that's where um, I come up with, you know, this. So basically... Um, I have a very. I'm, I'm, I have a very extensive appendix. I believe that the first, whenever you get a book, the first place you should look is the appendix. That I, I you know, work very hard to define these terms in ways that are, you can apply to other cases. That, so I don't know if that answers your question. So I want to go back to this
3: uh, divided identity. Uh, so how do you explain then the? Uh, of authoritarianism and so forth to questions about uh, supranational identity. Are we going to join the Eurasian Economic Union? Are we going to join the collective security treaty organizations? Are we going to join the uh, Central Asian Nuclear Weapons Free Zone? Yeah, uh, uh, how, how, do, how does... Here are these borders that you're now going to put in something else. Um,
2: no, so I think, you know, that in, in Moldova, Ukraine, I mean, one of the things that makes those divisions so powerful which in a sense I think they're more powerful than in Central Asia, is precisely because this division taps in, not um, not simply to these particularized regional identities like simply Eastern Ukraine versus Western Ukraine but a, a larger kind of view of Ukraine's place in the world as a part of Europe or is it part of the Russian sphere of influence. And I think that's in a sense what makes it such a sort of you know, what brings, what makes people passionate about it because, I mean, people are really passionate in Moldova, Ukraine. Are they part of Russia? Or are they part of Europe? And that's something that people are willing to die for. So I think that's very important um, distinction. That's not true in all cases, but I think at least in these cases, um, it's very much linked to these divisions. Um, so. Yes? Now I want to follow up on that question.
0: Um, also because, struck I, I when you listed Kyrgyzstan as having sort of being medium on the National Identity Division. Um, and I'm not an expert on understand, but my understanding was that at some of the conflicts there that it was actually Uzbek versus Kyrgyz because of their ethnic identity. And that's something you've never seen in Ukraine is people going at each other and kill each other because of their language or because of their ethnicity. It seems rather what you just said that it's whether people have a vision of allegiance with Europe or allegiance with Russia. But then even, I was thinking, even some of these people that could get pegged on the Russophile side, Kuchma published a thick book, not that each other wrote it, Ukraine is not Russia. And it seems like all these people that maybe could get put on the Russophile side were still strategically um, being Ukrainophile to some extent in terms of consolidating their own power. So how much is it is it just that there's the potential for identity to be mobilized anywhere, or is it that it's inherently divided? Because, like the Euromaidan, they were pretty clear. You know, there's so many people who are ethnic Russian and Russian-speaking who are,
2: and yet the vast majority of them came from Western Ukraine. Uh, you know, uh, you know. <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, you know, nothing will get a Ukrainian diaspora more angry in Toronto than if you talk about it and you talk about it divided the Ukraine. But the the data is just so overwhelming. Um, yeah. So sort of going backwards, um, you know. Yes, you're right. So um, what's interesting about Ukraine, you know, Timoshenko is another example. Of um, you had this, and, and and what's interesting to me is like, first of all, it's not you know, it was not inevitable that these identities would be mobilized by leaders, I and mean, they could have chosen not to. So there's nothing in them. But the fact is that these were that that popular sort of salience of these identities was so strong that it made it, I mean, as I sort of show, argue in the chapter, it kind of made it sort of too tempting for people not to sort of tap into one or the other. And in the case of Kusumi, he actually switched, right? Um, but it doesn't make the identities any less real. It just means that, you know, they switched, you know, uh, you know. Um, so I, I don't, you know, the identities, you know, the survey evidence between you know, a, there's masses of it, um, you know, you know, clearly, in the public mind, these identities were very real. and The question was, you know, which side do politicians, you know, choose to put their, you know, stake in? And both Timoshenko and Ukraine and Kuchma decided to switch, which is, but it doesn't make the, the identities less less real. Kyrgyzstan, you know, here I'm really talking in the Kyrgyz case, not about the ethnic divide, between Kyrgyz and um, and uh, who's back a more between the sort of uh, north south divide. Which, as Scott shows, you know, was much more particularized and much more about sort of, you know, clientelism and and less about sort of, sort of, global values and, you know, Kirkland's place in the world. So in that sense, I think it was, why my argument is weaker. Yeah,
1: over uh, I want to ask you about uh, parties. And I guess this is a risk for your next book. Um, boom what do we mean when we talk about strong parties in the post-Soviet context? And how can you tell the difference between the party that results from a coordination game, like Hill describes, from uh, honest to goodness strong party, like the pre- or the Umno um, 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 in, in Malaysia? They don't seem to be those kinds of parties in the former Soviet Union. And even United Russia, which looks very strong now, um, might simply dissolve when Putin is, is away from the scene. So how do you know strong party ex
2: ante? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I distinguish that's a very good question. I distinguish between weak, medium, and strong, right? So weak is sort of no party, or sort of coalition, which is no single ruling party. Medium is, is you know, basically, within the former Soviet Union, now you do not have any strong parties which are grounded in, in, in revolutionary struggle or grounded in a very salient ideology. So the Soviet Union in general, I mean, part of the reason why Mikhail criticized my book, um, he said, well, you know, parties um, don't matter. And, and Zenti is right, because parties in the former Soviet Union are just much weaker. You know, you have this, you know, this sort of, you know, in, in 1989, 1991, the party was destroyed. It's just very hard to create a party um, from scratch. And I think, so United Russia is like a medium party. But basically, when you have a structure and you a single party, not a coalition of parties, but in which there's no real salient ideology, so you know, you know, I, I totally agree with you. I think United Russia is, you know, definitely no, definitely no OPF and Zimbabwe, definitely no Chinese Communist Party. Um, but it's better than than not having a party. That was in terms of, and I think you can see in these case studies that you know that Yanukovych, by creating a party, was had a much easier time in in 2010, rapidly consolidating power, even though. Was, he was actually constitutionally a weak, very weak president. So, um, so you know, I think variation in party capacity matters less um, because you just, you know, the parties in the so you tend to be quite weak. Yeah. Okay, um, let's
3: try this book by um, Michael Ross, the, the Oil Curse, which is written mainly about um, states in the Middle East. But he makes an argument that authoritarianism, weak civil society. Uh, just the endurance of these regimes is is tied to oil revenue. And in the former Soviet Union, we have normal states that have a lot of uh, oil and or gas revenue uh, and uh, authoritarianism in there. I wonder if you'd comment on that and then even look at the opposite side, uh, which I know is going to be difficult, but if you import all your electricity or oil or gas Uh, into Estonia-elect Lithuania or Belarus or something like that. Does does that
2: have uh, an effect on your political economy and your your politics? Um, I'm not sure the latter does mean, you know, um, most post-Soviet cases um, import the vast majority of their energy resources from Russia, yet, you know, you see enormous variation in outcome. Well, yes, that is a a lot. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, if you look at the cases, And and so um, some of the sort of stronger cases, you know, I mean, part of what determines strength is you have the resources to pay your security officials, and certainly having oil makes that a lot easier. Um, So, I mean, it's not surprising that, you know, some of the most, you know, consolidated authoritarian regimes, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Russia, are also um, oil, right? Um, So that's, you know, that part is not very counterintuitive. Um, I do argue two things: um, is that first of all, you have enormous variation among the non-oil cases, from you know relatively strong authoritarianism in Armenia, um, to Jikistan, to you know relatively strong pluralism in these other cases, um, and also even among the oil cases, Azerbaijan, Russia. And Kazakhstan took and Pakistan, You have very different trajectories. That I think um, so. In, in Azerbaijan, it was very weak initially, which we was we, you know, very weak state in early 1990s, which explains the two turnovers. Um, similarly, uh, in Russia, you didn't have turnovers. But I think the pluralism under Yeltsin can partly be explained by the, uh, the weak state. Um, so it doesn't. So you know, oil does it, I think explain an important part of the story. But I think um, my variables are no less important for completely understanding those cases. And also, I think. Um, it's important to understand why, I think that, that my analysis shows um, um, in this, uh, why um, oil is important, right? So Ross and others tend to focus a lot on the amount of money, on the amount of
3: resources. And the proportion of state budget that oil, their right. energy provides, yeah.
2: Right. And so the question is, I mean, I, I, I think that the... The amount is important, but I think also, um, and this is more in line with my argument, that what oil does is not simply the, the sheer amount. I mean, uh, Ukraine, you know, at various points, has been quite wealthy. The question is that what oil does is it makes it easier for even a weak autocrat to monopolize control over wealth in society. So it's the, the degree to which the, the incumbent monopolizes control over the wealth, not just the, the, the size of the wealth per se. Right? And I think that's been a factor that's been less. Um, that's you know been less sort of talked about in the oil literature. So, but you know I, the oil literature clearly explains an important part of my variation. But I think I can still, I still have a, something to say. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I study a lot of Central Europe, and I know it's, it's not as, you know, kind of sexy as Eastern Europe. Oh, it's pretty sexy. Okay, okay. Well, um, <laughs> now, I was curious. Uh, I know it's not listed, you know, in your cases, uh, mainly because they've had a lot of democratic success, especially in Slovakia, Czech Republic, Poland. But they've also had very, they're very homogenous in national identity. Um, and I was curious, you know, what are your thoughts on... Why there's been so much success in Central, Central Europe? Um, is it just the higher prerequisites for democracy, Western influence, because they're in they're more so in Western Europe's backyard? Um, I was kind of curious what what, what your thoughts were. Yeah, so I just want
2: to be clear. I'm not arguing. <laughs> I make this clear in my book that homogeneous national identity, you know, makes democracy. You know, certainly I would never argue that. What I am saying, I'll eventually get there. Um, is that when you lack, you know, prerequisites, right, um, you know, that these factors become more important. So the reason, so basically, my two books go hand-in-hand. So competitive authoritarianism focuses a lot on international factors and the role of linkage and leverage, and as I argue, hope, convincingly, in Central Europe, the EU played an enormously important role and therefore, the causal mechanisms are just really different, right? Um, but there are a lot of cases, of sub, this is why I look at sub-Saharan Africa and the form of union because they're, they're equivalent in the sense that the, the external factor has played a much more faint role. So that's why I think in those cases, it's really the kind of domestic factors, which I include, sort of, the strength of the party of the state, um, that play a much more important role. I mean, you know, Baltic, because these other countries have the options of EU membership, and also, I think, in a lot of cases, um, you know, stronger prerequisites, you know, history of democratic rule and the like, um, you know, this was, it was really not this kind of dynamic. So, you know, I just, you know, so I'm not trying, I'm not, certainly not explaining democracy writ large. I'm saying, what explains these kind of hard cases that you would not expect democracy? And this is, I think, my theory helps us explain that. Small but important set of cases. So this is not, like, supposed to replace all or... You know, I'm not saying that economic development doesn't matter, that civil society doesn't matter. I'm saying that in cases where civil society is weak, oftentimes pluralism and democracy is a function of authoritarian failure. So. Yes? This might be an appendix question, but I wonder if you could speak just
0: a little bit about your data sources and your your choices
2: of information on measuring some of these variables. Um. So, you know, um, I basically... Um, I mean, some of them come from, you know, um, I mean, you know, from a variety of sources. I mean, some of these you know, there isn't, um, I you know, there wasn't a data set on on party strength, and that was you know, I had to just look case by case. I, mean, I have specific criteria, which I you know, it's been a while since I looked at my book, but can, it's in the appendix. I can, there was, you know, I think you can sort of measure party strength, and so I I look at in these cases, I sort of measure it sort of empirically. Um, for economic control, I I, I used um, um, so sort of EBRD data on degree of state control, and also and for resource wealth, I used you know World Bank data. Um, so uh, it was sort of um, different for different cases. I mean, it's sort of um, so, but uh, it was a mix of different sources. But uh, you know, the, but the aim you know um, and the sort could be improved. But I think the most important, I think I think for me because I was um, I really wanted to make sure that you know um, that you could identify these exogenous. You know, I do believe, I'm sort of a traditionalist. I think believe in sort of independent variable, which is completely distinguished from the dependent variable, um, and I think I do a you know, pretty good job. I'm trying to, so I'm, I'm sort of wrestling with Nora's first question about the notion of you know when
1: does this tip towards social breakdown and civil war and that sort of thing, and then at the same time what you just said about the, the idea that these are the hard cases where civil society really isn't doing much of the driving of pluralism that we do see. And I guess what I'm wondering is, so is there kind of a, um, is there a big picture policy implication or like a normative, like so, so what, how do we handle then similar situations in the future or countries where we think, um, you know, weak civil society? If, if your argument's right, it seems like the, the quote, successes that we see in the former Soviet Union are not due to anything that has been done by outside forces. It's really sort of a fairly contingent set of things that are going on within the country and I'm wondering if I'm, if I'm overreading that if that's overly
2: pessimistic. Um, I, I, I share a lot of your pessimism I, I think that's true <laughs> not me. Um, I don't think you know I think that we, I'm not saying that you know we play no role but I think there's very little evidence at least in the cases I know that Western support has played a kind of def- decisive role. I mean, I don't know about your case, Scott. But, um, you know, I don't uh, see it. And, and to the extent that it has, it was, it's was it been a function of the fact that the, that the, the, um, the autocrats were so weak they you know, even a small push could sort of push them over. I mean, and I do think, and I think it's an important question, which is sort of how you um, get beyond this sort of pluralism by default trap, as one of my colleagues calls it, you know, that, um into kind of a real democratic transition, you know, and I, I'm just not sure. I, I, mean, I, I certainly would hope. I mean, I would have actually expected if you, had, you know, talked to me 25 years ago, um, I would have expected a place like Ukraine that you know that over time, experience with pluralism and competition would have sort of led to the kind of institutionalization of these rules of the game. But what's odd is that you just do not see it. Like it doesn't matter. Like I mean, um, Ukraine has been. They've just been constantly, and Moldova as well, re arguing over the basic rules of the game. I mean, you just have not seen the kind of institutionalization of the. Of the I mean, it's been, you know, I was doing this volume on constitutions, and, and they talk about constitutional moments, which are like periods in which the constitution is under contestation, being trying to be, you know, people are deciding the basic rules of the game. Ukraine, Moldova, it's been one large, one long constitutional moment. They just have not been able to sort of, every time someone gets a little bit more power, they try to. To you know, you know overthrow the, the, the ox cart and restart again, and um, so I, I would never say that it's impossible, but it, you know I have to say that I, I might have expected, it, you know, after a quarter century, yeah, it hasn't. One more. Um, this
3: may be an unfair comparison, but uh, in in uh, Western democracies now, um, human rights minority rights uh, along all sorts of lines that have not a lot to do with national identity. uh, Gender issues and uh, uh, on and on. Um, uh, I see something like that in the Baltic states. Uh, Is there, in any of these other cases, when you're looking for pluralism, do you ever find uh, uh, this kind of human rights-based Pluralism that citizens have a constitution that says they're allowed to think of themselves uh, uh, as Democrats, as uh, gays, as uh, uh, Catholics, uh, or, or whatnot. Something that's that's um, uh, couldn't
2: be really identified as a, a national identity. I mean, generally, I mean, what's interesting about these cases? They had a pretty weak state, so. There's a lot written in the Constitution, but um, not enforced. I mean, I would say that, um, you know, it's interesting, I mean, um, I think to a certain extent that has also been by default. I mean, you look at sort of Russian rights in eastern Ukraine. I mean, the, the, the Ukrainian state was never strong enough. You know, right, Putin always complained, you know, you know, oh, the Russians are being discriminated. Well, the state was never strong enough to really impose a kind of Ukrainianization language policy. And so, as a result, I can tell you, having lived in eastern Ukraine, you know, no one spoke Ukrainian. Um, and so, was, you know, it was, it was not the case in any way that Russian rights were abrogated. But, you know, I'm not sure that, that was because um, the Ukrainian elites in were particularly nice people. It's because the state was, you know, it's strong to really impose that kind of policy. Um, and in terms of gay rights, you know, it's awful. So, as it is in the, all the former Soviet Union.
1: All right, let's say we're done. There's still an hour before sundown, so there's time to go out and play. Uh, Thank you. I want to remind you that the books are outside, and Lucan will probably autograph them if you ask him nicely. Uh, and if you enjoyed this, you might enjoy a talk in two weeks on May 6th, and we'll have Evelyn Farkas, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia and Eurasia, who will be here. Uh, so please join me in thanking Lucan Way for <laughs> flying all across the border.
2: Dinner. Oh Everyone great!
1: At your hotel. Um, We're having dinner. tonight. Great. Right? So many people will be here at, a a at call dinner. Call at call dinner with you as well. Um, yeah. It's I, do you guys have to compete with the weather though for
2: this? Yeah, yeah, you know, I think the better I feel like a good. Oh, it's
1: not you. It's not the diner. It's other things. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, quite a few people.
2: When do you fly back? Uh, tomorrow, very Okay, you teaching again this week? Or? Oh, no, I'm not spastic. So. Oh, yeah, you no, that's, that's easy. Good.
1: Let's see if we can turn off that light. Or we can just walk out the stage. Yeah. Go. By the way, this will be attached. <laughs> it? okay. oh, iTunes. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, well, I Absolutely. Mm-hmm.